Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Practicing the Way Vision Series. Hi everybody, good evening. Hey, uh, turning your Bibles to John chapter 1. If you missed last weekend, please go back and listen to the podcast. We kicked off a fall-long vision series that we're calling Practicing the Way. The salient idea is that the invitation of Jesus was to become a Talmudim. That's a Hebrew word meaning disciple or an even better translation is apprentice. And to be an apprentice of Jesus is to order your life around three goals. The first goal is to be with Jesus. The second is to become like Jesus. And the third is to do what he did. So over the next two weeks, I wanna go deeper on each one of these goals and put a little flesh and bone on each idea. So this week, we'll talk about be with Jesus. Next week, we'll talk about become like Jesus and so on. Does that sound like an okay map forward? Yes? Okay, great. To start things off, John chapter 1, let's read from verse 35. The next day, John was there, that's John the baptizer, again with two of his Talmudim, or disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. I love this. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Poor John. They left John right there and said, let's go to another rabbi named Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and he asked, what do you want? By the way, an intriguing question. And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Skip down to 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, it was like Hickville, like can any, like Forest Grove or whatever, you know? <laughs> Sorry if you're from, you're not from Forest Grove, come on. Um, or maybe you were, but you don't admit it. Either way, it's okay. Come and see. Notice that language. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Notice what Jesus said to the would-be disciples. Come and see. Or in today's language, come and hang out with me. See for yourself if all the rumors are true. See all that I have on offer. Or put another way, come and be with me. That was and still is the open invite of Jesus of Nazareth. But the question is, how exactly does this work now? I mean, we don't live in first century Israel. We live in 21st century, not Forest Grove. And... Jesus is not here, at least not in the flesh. He is, in the language of the Gospel of Matthew, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So how, how do you and I be with Jesus? Well, turn over to John chapter 14. Let's keep reading the story. John 14, a few pages to the right. The closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more he starts to talk about how he will go away, but in his place he will send what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit. Have a look at this. John chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, it's Jesus' name for God, and he will give you another advocate 
to help you, and then here's that language, be with you forever, the spirit of truth. That phrase, another advocate, is slippery to translate from Greek into English. It can be translated another like me or another one of me. I will give you another one of me to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you in an even deeper way. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Skip down to verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you. There's that language again. But the advocate, there it is, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So, according to Jesus, The way that you and I be with Jesus today is via the Holy Spirit. This means, as I said last week, that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. This is the baseline for all things following Jesus. There's no like 10 step formula. If there was, my guess is this would be step one. Come hang out, be with me. Now Jesus goes on to lay out a metaphor for how to live into this brand new reality. Look down a paragraph to chapter 15, verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Notice how that word keeps popping up. It's the word meno in Greek. It can be translated remain or abide or the idea is stay at home in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain, abide, stay in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. A lot of good stuff. Apart from me though, you can do nothing. Thanks for the vote of confidence there, Jesus. But if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my Talmudim or my disciples or my apprentices. Jesus' metaphor is that of a branch abiding in the vine. In this one little semi-famous teaching, he uses that Greek word meno, or abide, or remain, 10 times. In one dinky little teaching, 10, he's driving the point home. Get into the Father's presence and stay there. Root yourself, ground yourself, center yourself in the Father's presence all day long. Now, this doesn't mean hole up in a monastery. That actually was not the template set by Jesus. As I see it, this comes down to learning to always be two places at once. Eating your granola with homemade cashew milk in the morning and in the Father's presence, or whatever, you're like, dude, Pop-Tart, all right? (laughs) And a banana to balance it out. (laughs) On your morning commute to work, in the bike line, over the Hawthorne Bridge, in the pouring rain, and in the Father's presence. 
doing email and in the Father's presence, with a cup of coffee and a coworker and in the Father's presence, picking up your dry cleaning and in the Father's presence all day long. There's all sorts of language in the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament and church history to capture this kind of relationship to God. Jesus right here called it abiding. Paul in a famous line called it prayer without ceasing. Ongoing, continuous, 24-7 communion with God. Our Catholic friends call it contemplation or at times they call it advanced prayer. I kind of like that. There's prayer and then there's advanced prayer. Whole other level. The medieval mystic, Brother Lawrence, he called it the practice of the presence of God. I I think that's my favorite. Do you guys know about Brother Lawrence? Is that language familiar to you? Not, um, he's not a celeb or anything. He was a 15th century Parisian monk who was a soldier who um, was saved out of all of that and converted to the way of Jesus. And he joined this monastery. And the story goes that he, his life goal, like he devoted his life to one thing, what he called the practice of the presence of God. So this idea of abiding, he lit, that was literally his entire vision. What's your life about? Abiding what he called the practice of the presence of God. So years go by and he was a dishwasher. He wasn't a priest, he was a dishwasher in a monastery. And you know, words started to get out and he would write letters with people from all over Europe about practicing the presence of God. And at the end of his life, or really after his death, all of his letters were put together into a book which is really more like a pamphlet. You can read it in 20 or 30 minutes. Here's a quote that I love out of it. I remember I read this book when I think I was 18 years old or something like that, so good. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. Think about that for a minute, let that sink in. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. He's a 15th century Catholic monk, okay? The blessed sacrament, 6 a.m., you, the body and the blood of Jesus, that was the most sacred moment in your life. And he's saying, yeah, that's a great moment, but it's no better than rush hour right before dinner when I have 30 hungry, grouchy monks right outside the door. Give me some more potato soup or whatever. I have no idea. Like, what do you eat in 15th century Paris if you're a monk? Potato soup, that sounds like a good guess. That sounds like a good guess. I have no idea. The point is, I, lo- I possess God right in the chaos and the noise and the rush and the activity, the business of the kitchen. I possess God in that kind of tranquility. Man, I don't know about you, but my guess is that I'm not alone when I say I ache for that kind of a, I crave that kind of a relationship to the Holy Spirit. But notice that he called it the practice of the presence of God. I used this quote last week from Dallas Willard and I just, I wanna say it again. This is my all-time favorite quote. So I literally have this on the inside of my closet door every morning when I get dressed. I read this before I go about my day. He writes this. The first and most basic thing we can and must to do, so this is the starting point, we just, we have to do it, is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus, and here's his language from Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God is to direct and then redirect our minds constantly to him, to just keep God right there in the forefront of your mind. 
In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. He's so kind and gracious. He means you're gonna get distracted all the time. You're gonna be thinking about that girl from church the night before, or that email, or that critical comment from your coworker, or the dry cleaning, or this, or that your pants are still soggy from the morning cycle into work, or whatever. Like things less than God. But. These are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. You can actually rewire your default setting in your mind and imagination. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. His point is that living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit, that takes a lifetime of practice. For Brother Lawrence, he literally devoted his life to that end. It doesn't just happen, it's not just this easy, like, oh sure, yeah, okay. Abiding in the vine all day long as I'm on email and in traffic and in a meeting and this and that and responsibility and a three-year-old and No, it takes a lifetime of practice. In fact, in the chaos and motion and noise and hyper-connectivity of the urban digital world, it takes more intentionality than ever before. The writer William Paulsell has this to say, it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization of our own lives but there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. I could not agree with that last line more. There's nothing, no self-help technique, no level of income, no right relationship, marriage, singleness, children, whatever, nothing that will enrich our life more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living, right in the humdrum and the stress and the chaos and the reality of life in our city and our world. Now, this is where the spiritual disciplines, or what I prefer to call the practices of Jesus, are key, essential, non-negotiable, if you want to experience this kind of life. Um, There's no official list of the spiritual disciplines, but in the top 10 are always things like silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, reading the Bible, Sabbath keeping, so on. And... In my humble opinion, spiritual disciplines is actually a terrible name for these practices based on the life of Jesus, or in today's language, I think a much better word is just the idea of habits, because the spiritual disciplines are not spiritual in the platonic, dualistic sense. They are activities that you do with your mind and with your body. They are a whole person endeavor to orient all of your life around the ground of being and reality that is God. And for over a millennia and a half, really up until after the Protestant Reformation, and really even more recently than that, in America in particular, the spiritual disciplines were the starting point for apprenticeship to Jesus. So now somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, and hey, let's go through the book of Romans, or basic intro to Christian doctrine, or whatever. If it was 1513 or whatever, they would sit you down and say, you started to follow Jesus? Fasting. Like, we we don't even know what that means anymore. 
This is how you do community. This is how you do silence and solitude. This is how you read. These are the practices that orient a life around Jesus. But in America, these practices have become obsolete. Very few followers of Jesus practice them on any kind of a regular basis. In fact, a lot of the time, they get a bad rap in the church, which is just gut-wrenching to me, and we'll talk about how that is so dangerous and so off in a few weeks. And we'll talk about why for all, why that is. There's lots of actually decent reasons for it. We'll talk about why later. For tonight, I just want us to realize that the spiritual disciplines or the practices of Jesus are all a means to an end, every single one. So hopefully you all get that. Is the point of reading your Bible to read your Bible? It's not a trick question. It's okay, I'm not mean. Like, well, sometimes I am, but. <laughs> is the point of reading your Bible to read your Bible? Is it to know your Bible? No, that doesn't really help you. It's to live the way of Jesus, to be shaped by that activity into the image of Jesus. Is the point of prayer, prayer? Is the point of fasting, fasting? Is the point of silence and solitude? Check, I was alone, done. (laughs) Like is it, no, that's, that's, that's pointless. You're not earning anything, like you're already a son or a daughter of the Father. You already have that place of relationship with God. All of the spiritual disciplines, all of the practices are a means to an end, and the end is first and foremost to be with Jesus. And then next week we'll talk about to become like Jesus, the role that the practices play in transformation for sure, but first, like starting point is just, this is a way to present yourself before God. God, you're here, I wasn't, I was off somewhere else, now I'm here, together whether it's the practice of community around a table on Tuesday night, or the practice of silence and solitude early in the morning before you go to work, or anything in between. There are just ways to tune your heart and mind and imagination and even your body to the frequency of the Holy Spirit, and in doing so, to experience life. Now, turn over to Galatians 5. I just wanna read one more passage before we start to think about all the implications. Galatians 5, um, next week we'll hit on become like Jesus, but I just wanna give you a sneak peek I really believe this idea of abiding is the baseline for everything. Take a look at this in Galatians 5. This is a famous passage from the writer Paul. And I want you to pay close attention to what Paul does with the teaching of Jesus from John 15. So you, as we read through, you will notice, even in the English translation, allusion after allusion to Jesus in John 15. I want you to see how Paul takes this idea of abiding and he starts to work out the implications. Galatians chapter five, let's start off in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, you're my family, you're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, all of kind of the Torah, all of the Old Testament, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That would have been a much shorter Old Testament, Jesus, and a lot easier to read. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and then read this out loud if you have the NIV, love, joy, 
peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. This is a famous passage, and for good reason. Um, I'm a big believer that certain passages in the Bible are more important than others. It's all inspired by the Spirit of God, but this is in my top 10 passages in all of the Bible for sure. If you ever start to memorize scripture, this is a great place to start. But it's also, in my humble opinion, one of the most misread passages in all of the Bible, and for sure, at least, in all of the New Testament. A lot of people distort and twist this passage out of shape and turn it into a list of commands to be more virtuous. And there's a time and a place for that. Go read 1 Peter chapter 1. Make every effort to add to your faith. Like, there's a, there's a place for that. This is not that place. Okay, so a lot of people read this list, particularly that famous line, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, as a list of commands, as if Paul is saying, go be more loving this week. Go be more joyful. Go be more peaceful. Um, I was talking to my mom about this a while ago, and she said when she was new to Jesus as a college student, she started to read through this, and she, I can't remember if it was a month or a week. Either way, she was way over optimistic. But she wanted to set aside a week to like do each one of those things. So like one week she really worked on being loving. And the next week she really worked on being joyful. And the next week she really worked on being peaceful. And that's how we default to that reading of it. But notice, does Paul command you to be more loving or more joyful or more peaceful? No, he does not. That is not, there's not a single command in there. In fact, that doesn't work because love and joy and peace and forbearance, that's another way of saying patience, are not a matter of the will but of the inner disposition of the heart once it is transformed to be more like Jesus. So we can't grit our teeth and be more loving. Now we can utilize our will and we can fake it for a little while, right? And that's not all bad. But the problem with willpower is that we all have a finite supply of it and most of us use up our willpower by about 9.45 in the morning. <laughs> so then you have a problem because you can act more loving but you can't be more loving, right? Otherwise, man, life would be so much easier, right? You're like, man, you're so impatient. Be patient. Duh, that would be so rad if it worked like that. Sadly, it does not work like that, all right? Same with joy. You can choose to have a great attitude. You can rejoice. That's like the verb form of the noun joy. You can like look at the glass half, is it half empty, half full? I'm always the bad one. What's the half full, right? Is the, I don't care. Either way, it's, it's a half empty. Come on. <sighs> Either way, you don't have a full glass. Give me a break. But... Um, so you can choose to have a good attitude, you can leverage your will to like look on the bright side, but then 9.45 in the morning comes your way and then you're out and you're in despondency or anxiety or whatever. The point is you can't be more joyful. You can act more joyful and that's not a bad thing, but you can't be more joyful or more at peace or more patient or whatever it is. But reread the passage. Paul does not command you to be more loving or joyful or peaceful or patient. Paul, in fact, there's one command, I would argue, depending on how you interpret the text, there's really one command in the entire passage, and it's repeated twice, once at the beginning, and then it's reworded again at the end. In verse 16, walk in the Spirit, 
in verse 25, since we live with the Spirit, let us keep in step, or live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Or in the words of Jesus, abide in the vine. So, we can't be more loving or joyful or peaceful or patient. We can constantly open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and let him, as we partner with God, and it's always the both and of God and our partnership, as we partner with God, we can let God, via the Spirit, work that out through us into the world. Paul's metaphor is that of a fruit tree, and he's stealing that from who? Jesus. So think of a vineyard or think of an apple tree. How does an apple tree make a really good apple? By trying really hard? Like you ever seen like a stressed out apple tree just like, oh, golden delicious, come on. You know, like, no, go to Hood River. They're not stressed out. They're not even trying all that hard. How, like it's so dumb, but like, you get the point. Like it's a beautiful metaphor. How does an apple tree make an apple? By the branch abiding in the vine or the trunk. How does a vineyard make a really good grape for that glass of wine you have before you go to bed? By a branch abiding in the vine. In the same way, how does an apprentice of Jesus bear the really good fruit of love and joy and peace, the inner disposition of Jesus leaked out into relationship and interaction and conversation and outlook on the world by abiding, not by trying really hard, by abiding in the vine. As we live in connection with God all through the day, over time, he starts to transform us from the inside out to be more like Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. But for tonight, how do you do this? All of you pragmatists, I love you. Like, you're so great. You're just like, can we just start with the what I do tomorrow morning part? Can we just skip the whole why thing? I love it. You're just fantastic. And you're all thinking, okay, great, but how, when I wake up tomorrow morning, how do I do this? How, how do we walk in the spirit or keep in step with the spirit or abide in the vine or whatever you want to call it in the chaos of the urban digital age with traffic and social media and text message alerts and meeting after meeting stacked on top of one another and a two-year-old? How? Well, simple. It's not rocket science. You don't have to go to seminary to figure it out. It's really simple. You ready for this? You live like Jesus. Now, that's deceptive in how simple it is. Think about this for a minute. Here's what I mean. This is one of the most important ideas I have for you in the coming weeks. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, then you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Let me say that again. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, what Jesus called life and life to the full, That kind of like default setting of love, joy, peace, patience, and on down the list, okay? Read the four gospels. Jesus' life is compelling. Whatever you think about Jesus of Nazareth, he is wow. Like there's a moth to a flame thing about Jesus. If you want to experience that, then you have to not just believe the right stuff about Jesus. You have to, as a follower of Jesus, follow Jesus and adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Here's what I mean. A block away from my house, there is this house, I live in the Alphabet District, that has, I think, a whole bunch of single roommates in it, five or six of them, and they're all runners, okay? And, uh, and I watch them, like, early in the morning, late at night, they're always running in their ridiculous little tight Nike thing, like, and, 
and they all just look like a Nike model, and they all, like, you know that runner physique? Like, they're just, like, stick thin, but it's not, like, emaciated. It's, like, strong and lean. They're like a gazelle, like a human gazelle. <laughs> you know, they don't, you ever seen a real runner? They don't run, they prance, and there is a difference. So, I run, I run, like, 15 or 20 miles a week. I'm not a runner. I'm not a gazelle. I'm more like a horse, you know? It's just... <laughs> It's not pretty. I'm like, I'm 36 and let's just stay healthy. That's like I set the bar low, all right? So sometimes I can see this house right from my office window. And sometimes I look up and I see the antelope start to go off and <laughs> in a herd, you know? And I think to myself, man, I want to be like that. I want to be a, I run. I want to be a runner. I, I mean, I'm in good shape, but I, man, that's like, whoo, I, I want but then I think about the lifestyle that goes with that, right? So those people, I don't think they like eat Blue Star all the time, at least before a run. And my guess is they sleep and they have this pattern and they have a very specific diet and they run not just a little bit here and there when they're in the mood, but they run all the time. And my guess is it's not just maintenance. They have a race here and a race there and they mix it up and they change and they train. And there's like a whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really want that. You know, I want the byproduct of that. I want to be a runner. Yeah, I want the gazelle thing, but like the wake up at six in the morning and have a banana and water and then go run for like a six minute mile with, no, I'm okay, thank you. And this is true of anything. Like how often do you meet, if you're a musician, you meet somebody who's just an incredible guitarist and you think, oh man, I would love to play in a band like that and be really good. But like if you know any really good musician, nobody, you don't play at it. Like, you devote your life to it. You play really, really hard. Or you meet somebody who's really smart and intelligent and witty and well-read and this obscure random novel by some depressing smart guy. You're like, oh, yeah, that's great. What is he talking about? And you think, I would love to be that well-read. I would love to be that up in the New Yorker or that or whatever. But, but yeah, I don't really want to read, like, every day. <laughs> that would, I just want to be thought of as well-read. And I want to just, like, osmosis smart. Like, we want the life, but not the lifestyle. But the reality is your life, if you think about it, this is really simple, but it's deceptive in how profound it is. Your life is the byproduct of lifestyle, your lifestyle. By your lifestyle, I mean your rituals and your routines, the way you spend your time and your money, the way you organize your day or your week or your year. In business parlance, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you are getting. Right? So if you think about that over your life, what are the results that you're getting? Like what's the fruit that you are getting from your life, from your apprenticeship to Jesus, from your spirituality? Is it good fruit or not? Is it what you want or not? Your system, meaning your lifestyle, how you set up your life, it's perfectly designed to give you and to give me the results that we are getting. Here's what this means for following Jesus. Think of that line we read in John, I think it was 14 at the end of that chapter, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And we live in an age of anxiety, am I right? It used to be just for like the kind of stressed out type A neurotic people like me. Now it's like across the board. So how many of you read that and you think, yes, peace? And that kind of almost sounds like a promise from Jesus. Like, I want that, I want that so bad. I'm done with the anxiety and the stress of my life and my job, like I want that so, so, but I don't feel that. And you ever feel like a disconnect? You read about Jesus' peace and you're like, I don't have that. I'm racked by anxiety. I'm stressed out about money, the bills, this, that, relationship, work, like I don't, 
I don't have, how do you get that kind of peace? Easy, well not easy, simple. By following Jesus. Put another way, by living like Jesus. Put another way, by basing your lifestyle on the template set by Jesus. This is where we have to remember that Jesus is divinity and humanity, humanity in the same place. So Jesus is, if you wanna know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Like that is the character of God on display. But at the same time, if you want to know what a real true human being looks like, look at who? Jesus and other master apprentices of Jesus, like Paul in the New Testament or somebody that you might know even in our own church who's a lot like Jesus. Jesus is the example. That was a huge part of Jesus' identity and calling was to put on display the example, this is how to be a really good human being. So if you read the four gospels, you notice a few kind of wide brushstrokes about Jesus' lifestyle. He was never in a rush. He was unbusy, or maybe a more realistic word is unhurried. He spent a lot of time in community. He, would, he loved like go to a party and drink wine and eat food and hang out with his friends and his family. He also spent a lot of time alone, that kind of dichotomy. He would get up early to pray or go away overnight on a prayer retreat, or I just read this a few days ago, slip away from the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to process his feelings with God. He spent a lot of time sleeping, like more than once in the Gospels, the disciples have to wake Jesus up. Like, I love that, like, I wanna be like my rabbi right there. <laughs> like, sometimes he's up at four to go off and pray, other times it's like 9 a.m., he's like, is the bacon ready yet? No, he's Jewish, not bacon, whatever. Um, <laughs> is the gluten-free vegan pancake ready yet? Or whatever. He, he would Sabbath, he would set aside an entire day once a week for rest and worship. He's at the synagogue every single Sabbath. He lived simply, as far as we can tell, just the clothes on his back, not out buying and selling and online shopping and Black Friday and this and every weekend and all the discontent and distraction that comes with the materialistic and even hedonistic lifestyle. And here, here's, the, here's the freaky thing. Guess what? Jesus was at peace. And don't just default to, well, that's because he was God. Yes, he was also Jesus of Nazareth. Lived in the same world as you a lot of the same problems and issues as you. In, in fact, you could argue that he actually had a bit of a harder life than you. Like you could just argue that. You know, he was killed and all of that. <laughs> and still, he was at peace. You know, a lot of us are over busy. We all know that. I don't need to lay a guilt trip on you. Go, go, go. We're on our phone constantly. Digital addiction is a huge problem. A lot of us are buying way more than we need. We're not sleeping enough each night. We're cramming way too much into our day, our week. We don't Sabbath. And then we wonder, why don't I experience the peace of Jesus? Why am I stressed out? I pray, I go to church, I ask for more of the Holy Spirit. I read this whole line about my peace. I leave with you and then God, I feel all stressed out. Why is that? Because peace isn't just this like transfer thing. Like, oh, okay, here's peace for your horrible life. Go at it. No, peace is the byproduct of apprenticeship to Jesus. You start to take on the lifestyle, you arrange your life as best you can figure out based on the template set by Jesus, and guess what? You start to live into peace. Plus, I think on top of all of this, we're all trying to figure out how to be a human being and have an iPhone. 
Are those two things mutually exclusive? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Did you see that study last week? There was a huge study that came out last week, over 100,000 people in the sample pool on like iPhone and smartphone usage. The average, middle of the bell curve, smartphone user in the United States of America touches their screen 2,617 times a day. Over 76 sessions for a total of 145 minutes a day on their phone. That's nearly 2.5 hours. That's middle of the bell curve, all right? Heavy usage was nearly twice that. Why are you stressed out? That's why. You swipe your phone 2,617 times a day, and you wonder, why don't I have the peace of Jesus? Because often we don't actually live the way of Jesus or a lifestyle based on the template set by Jesus' example. Willard puts it this way, and and just stay with me for a few more minutes. The general human failing, this this is kind of a dense little quote, but it's quite profound. The general human failing is to want what is right and important. So most of you want this. Like how many of you want peace? Yeah, like world peace, whatever. Whatever kind of peace you're into, inner peace. Most of you are like, yeah, I want that. Most of us want what is right and important. Listen, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. I don't want to get up tomorrow morning and go running. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. This is true from everything from, I don't know what you're into, reading more or exercise or learning Latin as a second language or Spanish or whatever as a second language, anything, apprenticeship to Jesus, love, joy, peace. We want it. For most of us, that's not the problem. The problem is to actually rearrange our life to where our life, our, our system is perfectly designed to give us the results that we're after. Now, please, please don't misread me here. So no guilt trip at all. Like that's not the point here at all. I'm in this with you. I live in the city. I have an iPhone. I have a wife. I have three children. I have an Instagram account. I have a job. I like I, I get, yes, this is simple, but at the same time, it's really hard. But here's what I'm getting after. The lifestyle of Jesus is the way to the life of Jesus. The early church for hundreds of years was called, go read the book of Acts, followers of the way. Because to apprentice to Jesus, it was never just about believing all the right stuff about God and the Bible and identity and great stuff. It it was about living a whole new way of life. All of Jesus' life, what he called life and life to the full, it was the overflow of an inner disposition shaped by abiding. And if you want to get in on this kind of a life, then what you have to do is to arrange your lifestyle on the pattern laid down by Jesus. Now, if this sounds overwhelming, just take a deep breath. In fact, let's all do that right now. Let's just, very Portland style, just take a deep breath. You don't have to be Buddhist to do that. Like I can imagine Jesus doing the same thing, all right? Um, Relax. Two things before we wrap up. Long-term, short-term. Long-term, here's my advice. Simplify your life down to what really matters. Slowly cut out all the extra unnecessary activities and then add in 
one at a time, the practices of Jesus. Some of you are brand new to Jesus and like it's literally starting like from the beginning. Others of you are 20, 30 years in and you nuance and you tweak and you fit to your stage of life and personality and all of that. What I would do is I would make a list and do it in the coming month or over the next few months as we teach more in depth about this of what for you are the core practices that lead to life. So I have seven core practices that I think are non-negotiable, at least for me, my personality, my stage of life, wiring, silence and solitude, prayer, in particular fixed hour prayer, or it's also been called the daily office, that has been a game changer for me, fasting, reading the scriptures, living in community, Sabbath, and by that I include Sunday church, and simple living. Those seven practices, or if you prefer spiritual disciplines, for me are I think kind of the core like practices to arrange my life around the template set by Jesus. So make a list of, of what, what works for you, your personality, are you introvert, are you extrovert, what's, you know, what's your need, what are you dealing with, what's your baggage, what's your limp, what's your hope, like, and figure it out, experiment, and we'll do this together like, and it will take time. Some of you are type A, you're like, great, I'll have it done by next week. No, it will take for most of us years to kind of like reorient. I've been on this track for the last two and a half years of my life, just basically kind of re, slowly but surely rebuilding my life up from the ground up around apprenticeship to Jesus. And it's been life-changing and slow and three steps forward and two steps back and how do I do this with an iPhone and, and like all of that, like I'm living right in the middle of it now. Last summer, I literally devoted all summer, or at least two months, July and August, I had one goal and it was what I called an unbusy life. And I was like dead serious, like my goal for, like if you asked me last July, August, what are you working on right now? An unbusy life. And so I was really moved by that line in Thessalonians, we're teaching through Thessalonians, remember that, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And that line, like more than any other in that entire letter, like just did something to me. And so people would ask me like, hey, how are you doing? Are you really, really busy, huh? And I'd be like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and the awesome thing was everybody thought I was joking. Seriously, not one person thought I was serious. Oh, you're not busy, ha, like, that's a good one, Comer. That's, that's like jock speak, last name. What was that, man? I used a sports metaphor last week too. It's like all this talk about practice and the disciplines and like, whoo, let's go play basketball tomorrow, guys. No, I don't even know how, actually. <laughs> and I don't really care. But my point is like to live this way, you, you have to slow down. And I get how hard that is. And I get how tricky it is. And trust me, and particularly if you're type A and you wanna get it all, like you will not figure it out in a week or a month or three. It's, it's a lifetime thing. And in particular for a lot of us, it's a year or two or three to kind of reorient around the way of Jesus. But we'll figure this out together. Starting in January, we'll get into the practices of Jesus. And we'll just, as a community, hack one or two at a time for a month or two. And because it takes a lot of wisdom and creativity because you're not, most of you, I'm guessing, are not a young Jewish male itinerant rabbi from first century Galilee. Actually, that's, I'm pretty sure that's none of you. So the question is, how do you take the template set by a young itinerant male Jewish rabbi from the north of Galilee in the first century and apply it to your life as a stay-at-home mom or dad or an executive or a barista or a student and part-time employee at three different places? Like how, how, and that's why we do it all together in community. So long-term, 
set up the practices of Jesus and slowly start to move toward a life built around that. Short term, here's a really easy exercise for the coming week. Just set aside a little time each day for silence and solitude, 10 minutes. How many of you have 10 minutes to spare in your day? You're on your phone for two and a half hours. So just cut out 10 minutes. You can do it, I believe in you. And here's just a really easy exercise. So I get up every morning and I start my day with the ancient historic Christian practice of Chemex coffee. And then um, one of the core spiritual disciplines actually. So I, I make my coffee that takes, I don't know, five or 10 minutes. And then I just slip into this little room and I close the door and I take 10 minutes to just be with Jesus. I don't read my Bible, I don't, um, honestly between you and me, I don't really even pray all that much. Sometimes I just focus on my breathing and I just do my best to enjoy, to just, it's called stillness prayer in the contemplation tradition. I just, to calm down and center on the ground of all reality that is the Father. And you know, sometimes I just have this like dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit. Honestly, not very often but sometimes. A lot of the time, I'm just over busy that week, and honestly, 10 minutes goes by like that, and just like the mental clutter and distraction and noise starts to just go down a little bit, and I get to like 80%, (gasps) and then I move on. Most of the time, I just feel peace. Big surprise. You slow down, you breathe, you focus on God. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give you. It's a great story about an interview as we wrap up that um, Dan Rather did with Mother Teresa back in the, I think it was the late 80s. And at one point in the interview, this was on TV, he asked Mother Teresa, when you pray to God, what do you say? And Mother Teresa said, I don't say anything, I listen. And he said, oh wow, okay, he was a bit thrown off. And he said, okay, well when you pray to, what does God say to you? And she looked kind of confused and she said, he doesn't say anything, he listens. (laughs) And then she said, and if you can't understand that, I'm sorry, but I can't explain it to you. Now, that would be really easy to misinterpret. Like there is a time and a place to talk to God in prayer and to listen to God. Listening prayer is a huge part of the life of our church and my own apprenticeship to Jesus. The point that I'm getting at here is we live in a noisy, busy world that does violence to the soul and often we carry that noisy, busy tenor over into our prayer life. Okay, God, we have 10 minutes before I have to get to work, so a couple things, boom, 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 I need this, I need this, I need to be more patient today, come on, please, Jesus, I really need it a lot. You have anything to say? No, great, okay, see you tomorrow morning <laughs> at 7 a.m. <laughs> um, okay, like I get it, we're human, we have life, all the, but I just wanna leave you with this. There's a life that is waiting for you. It's open invite. Come and see. I think that's the call of Jesus for us tonight. Come and see. If you and I will just slow down, quiet our mind and our body, right in the midst of the chaos and noise of life in our city and our time, to be with Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. 
We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.